I'll ask you now to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's, you'll find one under the seat in front of you. If you turn to chapter 1, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 31. It's a little bit of a daunting passage. I was listening to a few sermons. John MacArthur does this section in five hours. We'll try to do it in a little bit less this morning. I promise you we will, in fact. But let's now read, let me read to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 31. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the words of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we open it this morning, we just pray that there will be no foolishness spoken. We pray that your word will be heard, that your spirit will speak through me and to us 
this morning that we might hear you, that we might see the power and the wisdom of the cross of Christ. And Father, we pray this morning for those in our body who may be hurting because of loss, because of physical pain, because of mental anguish. Lord, we lift them up to you this morning. We pray for them that your peace, that your healing would come upon them, that they would be restored in the joy of your salvation, that they would be physically, mentally, and emotionally supported by your spirit. Father, we have many new babies in our church, and Father, we pray for them specifically this morning. We pray that you would strengthen them physically, that you would strengthen them mentally. And Father, most importantly, we pray that they would grow in the strength and knowledge of the salvation that you provide. And we pray that, Father, for every one of our children, that they would come to know you and would live lives of great joy and abundance because of the salvation that you provide. And Father, this morning we recognize that there may be some here who do not know the power and wisdom of the cross. We pray that your spirit would work in their lives this morning, that you would pierce their hearts and that they would come to know you. And Father, we pray for each one of us here that we would be joined in unity through the power of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, this morning, I want to ask for your participation. I want you to actually use your minds here for a minute, and I'm going to have you think about a math problem. And I know you're thinking, oh boy, I didn't know I'm going to have to do math at church, but it's simple arithmetic. We have a bottle of water and some yogurt raisins. Together, these two items, and this is where you need to pay attention, these two items cost $1.10. The water costs a dollar more than the raisins. How much are the raisins? I'll repeat. Water and raisins cost $1.10. Water's a dollar more. How much are the raisins? Got your answer? How many of you think the raisins cost 10 cents? Raise your hands. Come on, be convicted. All right, we have a few, ten, oh, how many? 10 centers, come on, 10 centers. All right, how many think five cents? Oh, uh, looks like an equal number. How many came up with a different answer? Anybody? All right, so we're equally divided. Uh, great, I've created division in the church this morning. I think we'll have all the five centers over here. Oh, no, no. There can't be two answers, can there? Should we? I saw Rob raised his hand. He's a 10 center. So all the Rob followers, <laughs> let's debate the merits of 10 cents. Uh, who, who said five? Connor, you were a five center. All the followers of Connor. See, this is what was happening in the church in Corinth. There was debate over issues. And people aligned and said, well, if Rob thinks it's 10 cents, then I'm a 10 center. Well, Connor's an engineer. Yeah, you know, I'm going to follow him. It's got to be five cents. Maybe somebody actually pulled out their phone and did the math. Uh, this is what was happening in the church. We'll, we'll get into it. And it wasn't on simple things like a silly math question. Now, you're probably wondering who's right, because there is only one right answer, by the way. And it's five cents. It's five cents. So if the raisins are five cents, 
The water is a dollar more. That's a dollar five. Five and a dollar five is a dollar ten. And just to make you ten centers feel a little bit better, it is the most common answer. And the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology tells us that in most instances, the smarter people answer 10 cents because they don't actually do the math. They go to the fastest logical solution. It's wrong, by the way. They might be smart, but they're wrong. <laughs> so you have this division. The focus this morning is on the concerns of the unity, Christian unity, and its relationship to the cross, addressing an issue that we see here in 1 Corinthians. So if you look in your bulletin, you'll see three points that we're going to talk about this morning. First, a call to unity. Second, divisions that threaten the church. And thirdly, the gospel cure. And next to the gospel cure, if you're taking notes, you can write now the power and the wisdom of the cross of Christ. The gospel cure, the power and the wisdom of the cross of Christ. You see, Paul addresses a lot of messy issues in the letter in Corinthians. You will see that the people of the church are, are divided on opposite sides of the aisle. They've aligned with certain leaders to try to support their belief, and their focus has been lost. They've lost the focus on the most important, the central and unifying element of the church, which is the power and the wisdom of the cross of Christ. We've said that the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians is unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll see that front and center this morning as we dig into this passage. A few weeks ago, Buzz got us started in 1 Corinthians. We looked at the first nine verses. We learned that Paul is the author of 1 Corinthians. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And it says, by the way, uh, to all those saints everywhere. So it's to the Corinthians and to Christians everywhere, including to us today. There will be application for sure. He, he praises God and gives thanks for the Corinthians, and then he jumps right in. He jumps in. And based on this foundation, he first appeals to them for unity. He then says, there's divisions, and there shouldn't be. And then he applies the gospel cure. In fact, the remainder of this chapter, verses 13 through 31, deal with the gospel cure. And so does chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's so central to our unity, the power of the cross, the unity that comes from the cross. And so, you know, looking at Corinth and the book of 1 Corinthians from our perspective, it's a mess. It's just, it's really a mess. There's quarreling, there are divisions, there's a man sleeping with his father's wife who apparently was not his mother, uh, wealthier people not eating with poorer people, people using gifts in acts of pride, and we could go on and on. There's, there's at least 10 problems that Paul addresses in this church uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians. But the first issue that Paul addresses are divisions and quarrels, and he starts his conversation with an appeal to unity. You see, 
conflict existed in the church in Paul's time, and he addresses it front on. Conflict exists in the church today, and we too need to be cautious and wise to address it, and to address it with the truth of Scripture. Last week, in our bulletin, we looked at our statement of faith, the Scriptures. And here's what we heard last week from our statement of faith. It says, the Scriptures are now and will be to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard for evaluating all human conduct, creeds, and opinions. We all have opinions. Our opinions are not to divide us. We are to be united through the gospel. The gospel should set aside division. The gospel strikes at the heart of our inner personal conflicts. So let's learn from Paul's message as we dig into 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree that there are no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the focus of our message this morning is the goal of Christian unity and the re its relationship to the cross. So Paul starts this letter by saying, I'm really thankful for you guys. I offer you grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he jumps into an appeal. Well, what's an appeal? It's a serious or an urgent request. Some of your versions say, I urge you. Some say, I beseech you. So Paul says, I've got this appeal. Brothers, he connects to them. I'm appealing to you brothers in the Lord and he doesn't appeal to him appeal to them on his own authority he could have done that right Paul is an apostle he has authority as an apostle he founded this church spent a year and a half with these believers many came to know the Lord because of Paul's preaching yet he says I appeal to you brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ he appeals to the highest authority the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, brothers, I appeal to you. And what is this serious, urgent appeal, this serious, urgent request? That you all agree. It literally means to speak the same thing. That's what the King James Version says. This is a classic expression of a call to unity. This is Paul's very first instruction in this church that has all these problems to address, his first issue is that they be united. It's the theme of the whole book, as we've said, and Paul jumps right into it. I, I urge you in the name of Jesus that you be united. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. You see, the point of the psalm is the preciousness and the sweetness of harmony, of oneness, of like-mindedness when we are united 
in Christ. Returning here to verse 10, Paul denounces the vision, stating there should be no divisions among you. He calls the believers to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Having the same mind is to be similarly or generally disposed uh, in, in like ways of thinking, to be like-minded. And to have the same judgment means to agree on a particular issue or decision. So we are to be generally aligned and specifically on issues aligned. This is the appeal that Paul has for unity. If we were speaking in musical terms, Paul is not saying we sing one word or one note. He's not even saying that we should sing in unison. What he's saying is we should sing the same music in harmony. That's what the Christian life is about. We're not called to be identical. We are different parts of the body. But we're one, we are one body. We can't have the left foot deciding to go left and the right foot deciding to go right and be able to walk. We have to be united in our disposition. We have to be united in our decision as to where we are going and how we will go. We are to speak the same truth with the same mind and the same judgment. Paul calls for unity in the church of Corinth and he's calling for unity in our church here at Citizens as well. Turning to verse 11, we see the problem, divisions that threaten the church. Verses 11 and 12 tell us, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. For what I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So evidently what's happening is the church is divided on issues. Five centers and ten centers. And, and they're aligning their philosophy with a particular leader. Whether that leader believes it or not, they're using the leader as their voice of authority. Well, this is what I believe, and I'm a follower of Paul. So I've got to be right. Well, listen, I, I know Paul was the founder of the church, but, and I hear what you're saying, but I think this, and I'm a follower of Apollos, because he was an eloquent, wise leader that took came in after Paul. Well, listen, you're both wrong. Those are Johnny-come-latelys. I'm a follower of Cephas, Peter. He was there at Jesus' right-hand side. He preached the sermon at, the, at Pentecost. My view is I'm a follower of Peter, and that's why you should listen to me. And then another group said, well, I'm going to trump you all. I'm going to give you my opinion, and I'm going to say I follow Christ, because that's the trump card, and you can't argue that, so just sit down and listen to me. This is, this is the division that's taking place. The, the nature of the disunity in the Corinthian church was pride. Their pride expressed itself in many different ways. They're, they're saying, I'm right, you're wrong, I claim this Christian leader as my authority, and that's why you should listen to me. So Paul very quickly gets to the goal of the church, which is unity. We saw that in 10. In just a couple of verses, he points out the problem, the quarreling, this, this alignment with, with leaders. You know, Corinth was based, is located in Greece. And we know that the Greeks took great pride in philosophy, in debate. 
They love to align their philosophy with a leader and say, well, I follow, and you've heard, right? I follow Socrates, I follow Plato. They came a little later, but, but they were leaders who Greeks loved their philosophy, loved to debate, and loved to follow. Paul takes the rest of the chapter now, verses 13 through 31, and more, by the way, to apply the solution to this prideful problem. He introduces the gospel cure, the wisdom and the power of the cross of Christ. So starting here in, in verse 13, we'll find five truths of the gospel, which are a cure for division. Five points which demonstrate the power and the wisdom of the cross of Christ. So right off the bat, Paul in verse 13, with the gospel in mind, rhetorically asks, is Christ divided? Well, this was an easy question. Is Christ divided? No. No. So the first truth is that Christ is not divided. If Christ isn't divided, why are we? Why are you divided? Paul's asking rhetorically. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, so same book further in, says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ is one. Our body is one, made up of many members. Paul continues with another rhetorical question. Was Paul crucified for you? Was any leader crucified besides Jesus for the people of Corinth? No, of course not. It wasn't Paul that was crucified. It was Jesus. And so Paul's doing something really pretty tactful here. He knows that there's this group that is using his name to give credence to their philosophy. It wasn't condoned by Paul. And so he says, was I crucified for you? No, of course not. So why are you using me and saying I'm a follower of Paul? This is taking away from the power of the cross. Our salvation comes from the cross. So when it comes to boasting in a leader, we shouldn't boast in some mere man, Paul, Apollos, or Peter, as important as they are to our Christian heritage. Our allegiance is with Christ. It's Christ that was crucified for us. If you put a man above Jesus, you lose sight of the infinite and overwhelming of our crucified Lord and Savior. See, the cross breaks the back of all boasting. So the second truth is unifying, of the unifying gospel is that it is Christ that is crucified, and it's the cross that breaks the back of all boasting. So the cross undermines the deepest basis for disunity in the church. It lays a new foundation for unity. Thirdly, Paul asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you baptized in a preacher's name? I was baptized a long time ago, longer than many of you were 
have been alive. Over 40 years ago, I have no recollection of, of the man's name who baptized me. I don't. I don't remember him. I do remember being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That was the important part, not the preacher's name. I don't identify as a follower of that person who baptized me. To be honest, they're nothing compared to Christ. And, and in fact, if you think about baptism, baptism is a sign of dying to self and living for God. These divisions were so selfish, so prideful. They needed to, they needed to die in baptism so that they could come and live for Christ. The third unifying element of the gospel is that our identity is in Christ. Baptism is a symbol of our identity in Christ. And so if we are in Christ and we are united with Christ, we are to be united with one another in the body. Fourth, and now I'm going to skip down to, to verse 17. Paul states in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, true preachers don't try to convince people with their rhetoric, with their intellect and wisdom. Uh, my wife Melanie and I were in California. We had the privilege to listen to John MacArthur preach a sermon. And he was preaching on the power of God in salvation. And John MacArthur, in that message, said, I couldn't do this. I would be paralyzed from preaching if I thought that my words were the difference in convincing somebody to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior or not. If it was about the eloquence of my words, if it was about the wisdom of my thoughts, if it was about how I pronounced words or what words I put together, I couldn't do it. But because the power is in the cross, not in the eloquent words, he's been preaching faithfully for 50 years. And people have come to know him, come to know the Lord because of him. Paul may be giving a... a a brief reference here to the Apollos followers. There were many of them. Apollos came as Paul went to Ephesus. Apollos came in. He was a, a Jew from Alexandria, we find in Acts chapter 18. We, we read in that same passage in verses 24 and 25 of the book of Acts that he was an eloquent man, competent in the Old Testament scriptures, fervent in spirit, and that he taught Jesus, although he didn't ever meet Jesus. He knew of Jesus from John the Baptist, interestingly enough. We find him speaking boldly in the temple, and Priscilla and Aquila actually have to pull him aside and say, well, you, you got it mostly right, but let me give you a little correction, which apparently he took, and soon went to Corinth, where he taught. And because he was eloquent and full of wisdom, people were attracted to him. We, we are attracted to eloquent, wise gifted speakers. The words matter. And in fact, there are there maybe two major factions here, one with Paul and one with Apollos. And, and so Paul, who founded the church, was there for a year and a half. Uh, the, the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, came to know the Lord. 
he and his whole family because of Paul's ministry. Certainly he might have been, and, and by the way, he was baptized by Paul as well. So maybe Crispus was like, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Paul guy. And then some newer converts were, well, I kind of like Apollos. This is taking away from the power of the cross, the wisdom of the cross. It's not about eloquent words. Lastly, and, and th this really could be uh, a full sermon, verse 18. This is a beautiful passage, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is the fifth point on the gospel cure. The disunity in the church is removed by the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. The, the words used here, the word of the cross, word is logos. I'm missing my friend John. He loves to talk about logos. This is the logos and the cross. And this phrase together, the logos of the cross, would have been a really strange pairing of words to those who heard it. Even nonsensical to those who heard these words, both Jew and Greek. Because for the Jews, the logos was the law. For the Greeks, the Logos was the reason behind the cosmic order and the philosophy of understanding that cosmic order. So Logos and cross, the Logos of the cross, that didn't make any sense to the religious Jews or the intellectual Greeks. They would not have put those words together. And it's that contradiction that is Paul's exact point. See, the message of the cross is confounding to the wisest human minds. It appears as foolishness, but it's really the power of God and the wisdom of God. The passage here says that the gospel is folly to unbelievers. A, a better translation of that word folly is moronic, or it was insanity. It's that level. It's moronic. It's insane. You're, you're crazy for thinking this way. But to those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. For the unbeliever, the cross is a sham. To the believer, the cross is glorious and powerful. This conflict between divine wisdom and power and the world's secular view of wisdom has existed for a long time. And it comes as no surprise. Throughout history, God's worked in ways that people don't understand. And that history is designed to bring glory to God, not to man. In verse 19, the text, Paul cites a verse from Isaiah 29, 14, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, if I told you that I believe in an alien world that puts a baby in a spacecraft and sends it to Earth before their planet is destroyed, and that baby is raised by human parents on a rural farm, and the young man grows up with special powers. He has x-ray vision. He can fly. His breath can freeze things. 
He has super strength and is really smart. And I believe in all my heart about the existence of this man because I've seen him in the movies. I've read books about, well, comic books about him. You'd say, yeah, that's insane, Michael. You're t what are you talking about? That's you're talking about Superman. That's a figment of somebody's imagination. It's fantasy, right? It's, a, it's silliness. But in the view of the world, in human wisdom, would you believe that God in heaven would send his only son, who is born of a virgin, amongst animals in a stable, would live a perfect life only to die a heinous death? Why? To save you. Human wisdom and discernment is worthless when it comes to faith. Ephesians 1, 7 and 10 says it a lot better than I can tell you. Let me read that for you. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? To unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Moving a little uh, more quickly now. Verse 20, Paul asks a series of questions. Where's the wise man, the scribe, the debater of this age? Where's the intelligentsia? Paul's saying, look around. Do, do you see intellectual, scholarly giants who rely on their own knowledge coming to faith? No. Verse 21, God set about a course that will prove human wisdom to be foolish. God will use foolishness to prove the ungodly to be fools. The world doesn't come to knowledge of Christ through our own wisdom. God makes himself known to some through means which they would regard as foolish. He's chosen the cross as a means by which men are saved. Seems foolish. Verses 22 and 23, you know, the Jews and the Greeks didn't agree on a lot of things. That was true in Corinth and a lot of other places, but here they mutually believe the cross of Christ is foolish. See, the Jews were into the power of signs. And you'll remember when Jesus was in his ministry, they were asking him for signs and wonders. Prove you are who you are with signs and wonders. The Greeks, on the other hand, their power came from human wisdom. They took great pride in the intellectual thinkers and powerful orators of their time. And the message of a humble carpenter's son who came to die for them on a cross, a Roman cross, didn't make any intellectual sense to them. So the straightforward words of the cross was something they simply couldn't get their heads wrapped around. 
verses 24 and 25, we see that those who are called to this unimpressive good news, the proclamation of the cross of Christ, is a manifestation of God's power. See, there were two radically different views of the gospel. The view of the Christian is that the gospel is the wisdom and the power of God. To the unbelieving eye, God's weakness and foolishness proves man's wisdom. And they pale in comparison to one another. You see, the, the Corinthian believers, they were really status seekers. They wanted to, Paul wanted them to see how foolish it was to pursue that status in light of the divine power and wisdom of the gospel. And Paul notes that they weren't made up of wise men, scribes, and debaters in verse 20. And then in verse 26, he adds, granting a few possible exceptions, the church isn't composed of the wise, the mighty, or the noble, at least when judged by worldly standards. Instead, God's chosen to save the foolish, the weak, the despised, and the low. And, and that isn't to say that only the foolish, the weak, the despised, and the low come to Christ. He chooses them. Verse 27, the word chosen, it's very significant because it underscores that God decided to choose people, not because of their intellect, not because of their position in the world. The truth is God chooses who he will. He, choo he chose the foolish, the verses say. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the low to bring to nothing those who think of themselves as high and mighty. God has not done this because the foolish or the weak are better than the powerful. He set aside the high regard for those that employed such things and, and disdained the high and mighty so that the glory might come to him and not to ourselves. This is how Paul concludes in verses 29 to 31. And let me read it so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, let me repeat that, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, if God were to achieve his purpose uh, through the worldly wise and powerful, we'd be inclined to give praise to our own intellect. We would say, boy, wasn't I smart? I chose God. I'm glad I made the right choice. Sorry for you dummies that don't know what I know. Instead, we're reminded that salvation is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith. 
and that not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Why? It's not of work. It's not of works. No one can boast. For by grace have you been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, the people of Corinth got wrapped up in their intellectual debates, in quarrels and divisions. They lost sight of the power of the wisdom of the cross of Christ. They failed to focus on the centrality and unity of the gospel message. And we too need to take heed as brothers and sisters in the Lord because he saved us. He brought us together as one body. Here at Citizens, we are called to unity, to like-mindedness in light of the gospel message, the centrality of the cross that we share together as believers. May that be the way we live and walk and work together. To God be the glory because he has done great things. Let's pray. Father, I'm just humbled by these words. We're so thankful, Father, that you intervene in our lives. You strip away our own ideas of might, and strength, and wisdom to reveal its foolishness and weakness. You replace that with your wisdom, your strength, the love of Christ who died for us on the cross, that we might be united as brothers and sisters to one body, serving you, giving you the glory that you deserve. Father, I just pray that that would be the lesson we learn from your word today. I pray that we might apply it to our lives and that your spirit would overflow in the fruit of the spirit in how we live amongst one another, that we might be a light here in Westerville, that we might shine brightly in Columbus as a church that's united in Christ through the power and wisdom of the cross. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.